0: The Ireland Chair of Poetry Trust was set up in 1998 after the award of the Nobel Prize of Literature to Seamus Heaney. It is jointly held by Queen's University Belfast, Trinity College Dublin, University College Dublin, and the Arts Council's North and South. Every three years a poet of honour and distinction is chosen to represent the chair as Ireland's Professor of Poetry. Now, that's the theory that's the description you'll find on the Trust's website, which also lists the poets who have held the position since 1998. John Montague, Michael Longley, Ní Egonil, Paul Durkin, Harry Clifton, and Paula Meehan. But a simple list can't begin to convey the variety, the depth, and the sheer exuberance which the work of these poets represents. A few months ago, Paula told me a wonderful story about some friends of hers from Belfast, who since her appointment as Ireland professor of poetry, have been sending her photographs of ever more elaborate chairs saying, is this the chair of Irish poetry? Or is this the chair? And I must say that ever since she told me that story, I have been seeing visions of the Ireland chair of poetry as a piece of furniture. In my head, it appears as one of those handcrafted chairs made from green native wood, which you might buy in West Cork. Totally contemporary, beautifully designed and just a little bit wonky because it's designed to by the person who's actually sitting in it as much as the person who has designed it. So above all, it's given patina by the poets who have perched in it for a while in their own highly distinctive way. And we are honoured indeed to have three of those poets with us today Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Michael Longley, Harry Clifton and Paula Meehan. So could I briefly ask you how each of you sees the chair? Paula, you're the current incumbent. Have you found it different being the professor of poetry to what you imagined it would be?
1: Yeah, the the chair is really like a unicorn. It's this mythical beast that we're all waiting to see. And in fact, the people who who text me those chairs, the images of the chairs, are my good friends, Joan and Kate Newman, who, when I went up to Belfast, because I lived up in Belfast for the first year of of sitting in the mythical chair, um, they were incredibly helpful to me and brought me around the communities and um, I worked with students in the, in the Seamus Heaney Centre, but also got to meet many of the writing groups, which are all over um, the northern counties. So I think, for me, the idea of the chair, you know, evaporated immediately, and the idea that it would be like Wordsworth's uh, couch, where he'd oft lie in vacant or in pensive mood, <laughs> totally out the window, and it's been very, very, uh, energetic and energizing i found that it was easier to go with the flow of demand and interest and conversation than to kind of turn around and try and protect my creative space so i suppose the balance in the two um have affected, you know, finding a balance has has changed the way I write for these few years, but that's no um, bad thing, and really it's been an amazing opportunity to shake up all that I believed about poetry, all that I understood about the community of poets on the island, and generally I will not be the same person Easing myself creakily out of the chair as I was oh. coming into it.
0: <coughs> right. And Michael, your t- tenure was from 2007 to 2010, uh, which it seems almost impossible to imagine it now, it was before Seamus Heaney left us. And of course, the chair was established in the wake of his win in the Nobel Prize. You were such good friends. Did he have any advice to offer you about the chair? And oh, did
2: you take it? Uh, I, uh I didn't want the chair, really, you know. (laughs) And it was, in fact, Heaney who phoned me up. And used to call me doctor, Dr. Longley. And uh, he more or less prescribed it for me, as he thought it would do me good. And um, I I accepted. Now, I have very little to add to um, uh, Paula's uh, eloquent aria. except to say that it mattered to me as a, an all-Ireland Ulsterman that the, 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 the chair spanned the border mm. and uh, I've always enjoyed uh, the company of young people and uh, it was a pleasure working with mostly uh, young people who were interested in poetry or even wanted, wanted to write it. Um, The the challenge for me, our mentor, was writing lectures, (laughs) and I wrote three lectures, of which I'm quite proud now, but it was like pulling teeth. Um, I I don't know what happens when I write a poem. Um, I mean, I know that my brain is not in the fridge, you know, that uh, one uses one's brain, Uh, but it happens. In a, in a way that I don't have com- complete control of. And the mysterious thing about a poem is that it can come just like that. I've written poems that have taken me just as long uh, as it takes to write them out, um, and a prose doesn't happen like that. You have to sit down and think, and thinking is awfully hard work. So, uh, it was good exercise uh, from, from that point of view. And then uh, I enjoyed being in Queens because it's our local university. I enjoyed being in Trinity, which is my old university, and uh, working with Terence Brown there. And I, uh, I was very nervous of UCD, which for me was uh, terra incognita. <laughs> uh, and in a way, it was UCD that I enjoyed the most. So that was, that was a refreshment too. But it was um, by and large, great fun, and I felt slightly melancholy when it ended.
0: Mm. <laughs> Harry, um, you st- said that you chose to focus on Ireland in a wider perspective, yeah. and you're, during your time you wanted to take it internationally
3: um, <clears throat> Yeah, um, I suppose what, what, uh, what the chair has, mo- has meant most mostly to me is uh, you know <clears throat> I'm under the impression. Um, um, when, 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 when you read into the tradition of poetry that one, one of the things poets try to do, almost unconsciously, is to create a space for themselves and their own work. Uh, and sometimes, of course, that can lead to uh, abrasiveness, particularly in, in the early part of life, and people are aggressively trying to do that. Um, but I suppose um, the chair meant for me an opportunity to kind of state where I was coming from, um, which I I felt was a little bit different from what I would call a sort of mainstream Irish identity, poetic identity in a certain sense. It gave me a chance to create my own space. And I think uh, because my background is quite cosmopolitan, I grew up in an Ireland that kind of over insisted on Irishness as being a sort of green paint that was put, slathered over everything, mm. if you know what I mean, from the outside, not from within. Um, and I suppose writing the lectures was an opportunity to, to restate Ireland in a way as, as a place that overlapped with other force fields outside itself, like Britain and like Europe and the States and so on. So that's what it was for me. It was, it was an, an opportunity to create a space for myself.
2: Mm. Right. Um,
0: yeah. Um, and anybody who wants to know really what The Iron Chair of Poetry is about, these books are the best way to do it. This is Michael's Three Lectures, which uh, were published earlier this year. Harry's, which is being launched today. And we have Paula's to look forward to early next year. that right. So, Harry, I wonder, would you uh, read for us first, please? Yeah. And you didn't you write a poem called The Chair? Do you want to read that poem
3: or um, <clears throat> I might read that later on okay, in the, the proceedings. But <laughs> Dennis O'Driscoll used to say, I always do press ups of my reading. Uh, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, whenever he was confronted with a challenging furniture situation. Yeah. <clears throat> Facing Mecca. When the cook down tools we all knew something was happening. For menu, the dietary rules of Islam. Each evening, silence, prayer, a thumbed Quran, and the whole place gone to hell for the length of Ramadan. Through the plate glass window, a city in passing, amazed, looked in at the empty dining room, the mat on the floor, and the brass of an age old compass. Needle and orientation, pure belief. Now kneeling, now prostrate, as the psalmody dictated. Orderly, calm, he was facing Mecca. Ley lines, false meridians, and nothing. He was getting there on the steam of a travelling kettle where pilgrimage, like prayer, is to the centre of one's whole being. We watched him all November in the darkened city, unseeing, as the rain beat down outside and business died. Instinctively. He would know when everything came to an end. We would hear him through the long sleep of infidelity, slaughtering sheep made perfect by the law in our courtyards below. Uh, For 10 years I lived in the city of Paris uh, in an apartment building. Um, um, actually, uh, 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 what we call a front populaire uh, building, um, working class uh, terrace on the edge of Paris, um, uh, a house uh, with a very mixed, uh, uh, a great mixture of residents in it: um, immigrants uh, li- like uh, my wife and I, uh, and uh, uh, Portuguese people who come uh, to, to to find work in, in the city. Uh, also, quite conservative people uh, of a royalist Catholic background, um, and old trade unionists um, uh, from the, who, whose resistance, shall we say, to the state of things stretched right back to the, the German occupation, so a, a kind of a microcosm, if you like, of, of, of what we think of as France. Um, <clears throat> just down the road, uh, we're just quite close to the edge of, of Paris. Uh, Were the the, 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 what were called the HLMs, um, the apartment buildings, uh, where many immigrants were housed? And uh, every day uh, you would see uh, large numbers of people, young people, standing outside these uh, buildings with uh, uh, no apparent place to go and nothing apparently to do. Some of them being frisked by uh, the local police. Um, And uh, it was an uncomfortable reality. Um, uh, I used to cross Paris sometimes to a place called Bobigny, uh, which some of you may know, it's actually on the east, it's an eastern suburb of of, uh, Paris and there's a a well-known theater there. Uh, um, I suppose, uh, how would I put it, a kind of modern experimental work, um, certain kinds of theater and uh, <coughs> to get across to it, you uh, had to travel underground for an hour, um, and uh, of course, uh, in an underground uh, um, train trip like that, you know the parts of the city you're passing through <coughs> by the, the changes of people getting on and off. Um, the area you have to pass through to get to this uh, theatre is known in Paris as the Zone And uh, it's a particularly, regarded as a particularly difficult or deprived or dangerous area, depending on your point of view. Uh, This is a poem called The Zone. And uh, the names of places are the names of of metro stations. (coughs) The Zone. Gare de l'Est, another nightmare station on the north-south line where it is always midnight, or a vision of down and outs asleep in their own moonshine. Change for the other Paris. Lower depths of Gare du Nord, of Jauré's Stalingrad, where the addicts sleep and the platforms are unswept. And the cheapest heroin is always to be had. And the line runs clear through Lomiere and Orc, past the old slaughterhouse and the immigrant quarter, sure as a learning curve or the crest of Islam, purifying as it goes from west to east. Mohammedans descend. Mohammedans enter. Here, you are out on your own, a stranger from the realm of means and ends. Cartesian ego, barreling under the zone, past Port de Panta through to Bobigny. Not that there's anything there. The end of the line. A flight of metal stairs, surveillance cameras, walkways through the trees political theater, people at a bar between the acts, a bell about to ring, reminding them, discreetly, who they are and that they will have to answer for everything. Uh, I'm going to stay in, in uh, the city of Paris and read a poem from a different slant. Um, uh, one of the things, uh, <clears throat> one of the things you become very aware of uh, in, in in a life of poetry, if I could put it this way, uh, in in our particular time, is the immense uh, posterity consciousness there is among poets. Um <clears throat> uh, the, the the poet Cheslav Miloš uh, used to say that um, you know in the absence of religious belief, um, uh, people poets uh, were taking out what he called extra life insurance Um, meaning that uh, if their archive was preserved somewhere uh, they would somehow be cheating death Um, and as a matter of fact one of the lectures i've written uh, and which has just been published is very much on the theme of america as the afterlife Mm -hmm. for many irish poets Um, it's the sort of the the place, shall we say, where they are going to embalm what they hope is the best of themselves. Um, in, the, in, the, in the slightly comical um, hope, I guess, that uh, like those people who freeze them, their bodies, you know, uh, in the hope of, of that a hundred years from now, um, immortality will be found, uh, they can unfreeze themselves and uh, be vindicated finally against all their enemies. So it's a wonderfully comical notion, I think, this whole business of uh, striving desperately for posterity. And the day poetry arrives at its true maturity, I think, will be the day when a poet writes a poem uh, believing in absolutely nothing, that they're going to be totally forgotten, and that their work is going to be totally forgotten. The poem that's written out of that will be a poem to wait for, I think. Um, but there are other kinds of poets, and. Uh, Here's a, here's a poem about a different kind of poet uh, who believed that what he made was not um, permanent. Uh, man who lived around the corner from us, actually, where we lived in Paris. The Baker. My husband was a baker. I made these. The lemon tarts, eclairs the dream confections, the cream confections, and the dreamy farls. You may have seen him any day through the street window slaving, stripped to the waist, or wearing his long white apron in the body heat of ovens, flowery trays, an artisan. His hours were long. He lived, invisibly for the most part, at the back of his own creations. That he drank champagne each night by the magnum ought not to surprise you. That he ran away in childhood, broke the mould and served his long apprenticeship on the road with the journeyman. Who keep the front of the shop, where his passion cooled into flans, strawberry gatto, and a string of grandchildren, ask that he be remembered, whose light burned late and early, whose hours were strange, and whose cakes were his afterlife. I'll just read one more poem, um, staying in that, that zone. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the novelist Saul Bellow um, was asked uh, uh, once what he would most like to be, and he answered, uh, I would like to be God in France. When he was asked why, He said, because in France, um, nobody believes in God. And therefore, as God, you would have um, access to all the wonderful sensual delights of that place with none of the divine responsibilities. (laughs) Um, And of course, it wasn't his own original remark. It's actually, I think, a Hasidic Jewish remark from Eastern Europe about a definition of happiness. um, I lived in that city for 10 years and uh, uh, I, wrote, I, 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 I gathered together the poems that I wrote about that time in a book uh, called Secular Eden, um, which is a kind of a contradictory title. Um, uh, and it came from the fact a feeling that I was living uh, in, in a society um, which wanted to be Eden, uh, but only in the secular sense. Um, and that I was living very much on an interface, if I could put it that way, uh, between an older uh, kind of sacral or medieval mentality and a modern uh, liberal, uh, uh, secular liberal um, um, society. Um, And it was a very, kind of an eerie feeling in a way to be on that interface. Um, And you know, uh, I sometimes feel that the freedom gets to a point where it might burst back in itself into a kind of apocalypse uh, and not be entirely uh, capable of maintaining itself in a certain way. Um, But this is a poem which tries to celebrate, if you like, from inside um, the notion of happiness. And it's called God in France. And it imagines God, I suppose, as an ordinary French person Uh, who nobody knows, who's in the heart of their own life, or the life of that place. God in France, Allah of Islam, Yahweh of the Jews. They were calling upon me all over Paris. Sabbaths, but the Bon Dieu had gone missing. I had set myself free from Friday at the mosque that pile of shoes, those thousands praying. Saturday Torah scrolls and lit menorahs, Sundays salvaging souls. From Daubanton des Rosiers, Saint-Gervais, to live again in the body, l'homme moyenne sensuel, adrift on the everyday. Street life. Glass cafés were my chosen ground. Whatever I needed easily could be found in a few square miles. Massage, phlebotomy, thalassal brines, and hydrotherapeutics. Mont Saint-Genevieve with its hermeneutics. Clichy for hardcore. All the highs and lows of pure bien-être like a bird in the hand. Oh, yes, if I wanted a woman, I knew where to go. And who could deny me? Human, all my horizons were reachable by train, from Austerlitz, Saint-Lazare, the Gare de Lyon. Not that I needed them. Gifted, like Eurizen, with omnipresence, simultaneity, I could sit here over dinner and still see Normandy's apple belt or the light waves of the South collapsing on beaches. None could deny me the springtime glitter of shad in the river mouth of the long Garonne, that exquisite flesh, the bone that sticks in the throats of 20 centuries. Ichthyus fish, like Renan's Christ, was dying, dying out in the boredom of villages, of Proustian spires, provincial time, the echo-sounding fleets of La Rochelle, the sleep of the Loire, the happiness that is almost too complete, the Sunday afternoons that run on Michelin tires. Was that terrible? Tell me, was that sad? the night of the gods, of absences, abscondings, abdications. Was I to kneel before him, the tramp at the station, unpeel his stinking trainers, wash his feet, amaze the wage slaves? In the name of what would I drive the midnight circle of philosophers out of their TV studios, swivel chairs, with hemp and fire, the rope of castigation. No, instead I would sit here. I would wait. A dinner, a cafe creme, a chaser of grog. Whatever else, there was time. Let judgment take care of itself. To celebrate, that was the one imperative. Randomness, flux drew themselves about me as I ate, protected by the nearnesses of women, their sex blown sheer through summer dresses, loving my food, my freedom, as they say a man should. Thanks for
2: Thank
0: you so much, Harry, for reminding us that there is poetry as well as tragedy in Paris, because I'm sure our thoughts were all there anyhow. Now, Michael, are you going to read next? Yes.
2: It's rather nice having professorial siblings. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, sister in crime and brother in crime. And one of the lovely things that has happened has been the, my three lectures appeared in June, and uh, Harry's three are being published today. Now, I just want to read some new poems uh, to prove that my professorship uh, did not stifle me in any way. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'll read for about 10 or 15 minutes. I I want to read these new ones. Now, they're mostly short. Most of what I write is on the short side, but I do believe that most poems are too long. I'd love to say that in heaven to John Milton. <laughs> um, anyway, here we go. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, it was armistice to stay. Uh, I'm very preoccupied by, by the Great War, partly because my father uh, fought in it. As, as a teenager. And it was there in the trenches that he uh, acquired a taste for woodbines. I don't know whether they create them, make them anymore, little cheap cigarettes, which he chain-smoked. And uh, that's the, this, an eight-line poem, two-quadrant, uh, called Woodbines. And I'll follow that with a, a shorter poem, just four lines, uh, about him being shot in his his genitals Woodbines You smoke two woodbines before getting dressed and sit up on the bed and cough and cough You who survived a chlorine gas attack You peed on your sock to improvise a mask By the banked fire, sit you down, old soldier. With poker and tongs, arrange the embers. Light up another woodbine, clear your lungs. I'll walk to the shops and buy you gaspers. Survivors, show us the mustard burn on your shoulder and the shrapnel bruise on your shiny chin. Dad, you caught one in your courting tackle and nearly lost my sister, twin, and me." (laughs) And our younger daughter, Sarah, has moved to the Western Highlands to live, and above her cottage, there is a, a, a steep hill at the top of which there is um, what I think must have been a Neolithic uh, burial mound and uh, which in Victorian times was used. And when I walked up there, a very really hard walk, it was covered in snowdrops and I imagined Tommy's soldiers the First world War coming from the local little villages like Balmacara and Kyle uh, to pick snowdrops for their sweethearts the snowdrops inauspicious between headstones on Angel Hill, wintry love tokens for Murdo, Alastair, Duncan home from the trenches, back in Balmacara and Kyle Cameronians, Gordon Highlanders, clambering on hands and knees up the steep path to this graveyard the snowdrops whiten. Green hemmed frost piercers, buttonhole or posy, candle mass bells for soldiers who come here on leave and rest against rusty railings like out-of-breath pole-bearers. And a poem set in that part of the world. Rock House. This this hill is called Angel Hill. And that's going to be the title of my next book. (coughs) Solstice. Hoping for otter encounters, I walk without grandchildren into the loch silence, the puddle-lit salt marsh. But curlews give me away, and I concentrate instead on the low sun as it frays through a tree-creeper's useful fan-tail. Unlike the nuthatch, it can climb only upwards in spirals, bark mouse, crevice snoozer, before I turn to face my elongated shadow with its walking stick and the cottage where grandchildren draw in closer to the stove on the shortest day, above them bracken rusty. Angel Hill, and a poem about my our youngest grandchild, and our streprous little two-year-old called Amelia. It's a kind of sonnet. The pine marks. Amelia is making up her own tunes by first light. A shrew and field mouse all bad. A cradle song for nestlings that escape the green woodpecker. Her improvisations, a mist net that entangles John Campbell's ghost. Who lived here years ago and fed the pine martens. And walked depressed down the burnside Borin, in his sock. The lockout and drowned himself there her notes lamentation and welcome for punctual pine martens scratching the kitchen window for bread and jam. and, and they they were over a few weeks ago and it was a great uh i mean, i took them to a park and uh, we played um, with Autumn Leaves. And here's a little little four-liner, little what I call Granddaughters. You have buried me up to my shins in Autumn leaves. I am taking root. My arms are turning into branches. My head fills with chestnuts and acorns. Now, one of the reasons we're all here is is is, is, is Seamus Heaney, and uh, this this post was founded partly to celebrate um, the vivacity of uh, Irish poetry, but also to mark um, his um, winning the Nobel Prize. So, <coughs> I'm going to read. Uh, analogy for Seamus. It's six quatrains, uh, 24 lines, which is a favourite shape of mine, six by four. And uh, it's they're numbered. So I'll, perhaps I'll just read the numbers as well. And I called it, uh, in, in 1968, Heaney and David Hammond and I uh, went on a tour of Northern Ireland with song, uh, folk songs, and and poems, and it was called Room to Rhyme, and uh, I ref- this was inspired really by the fact that um, I read with Seamus in, in this Varna, uh two weeks before he died, and um, at that reading, which was a marvelous occasion, um, the RMR rhymers <coughs> erupted. Onto the stage, much to everyone's delight, dressed in straw. And I, re- I refer to them. Everything else is um, self explanatory. Uh, one of the reasons I got hooked on the, the First World War was that um, uh, Seamus and Mary Heaney came back from their honeymoon in London, uh, having been to oh, an odd, lovely war. And they brought back a record which they they loaned me of the great war songs. Room to rhyme. In memory of Seamus Heaney. One. I blew a kiss across the stage to you when we read our poems in Liston Varna two weeks before you died. Arrayed in straw, the Armire Rhymers turned up at the end. 2. In the middle of a field in morn country, standing side by side, looking straight ahead, we peed against a fragment of stone wall, St. Patrick's Windbreak. the rain's urinal. 3. On our pilgrimages around the north in your muddy Volkswagen, we chanted great war songs. Hush, here comes a whiz bang. We're here because we're here, because we're... for. Smashed after room to rhyme in doll, we waded through heather stands to Fairhead, and signed our names in Barrow on Davy's shirt and launched it off the cliff into the wind. We drove after Bloody Sunday to join the Newry March, roadblocks, diversions. Time enough to decide if we were asked at gunpoint, and what religion are you? six When Oshin Ferrin was buried six when Oshin Ferrin was burned to death, you stood helpless in the morgue and wept and wept. Awaken from your loamy single bed. Kiss me on the lips in Listunvarna. And I'll I'll close with a poem from a few weeks ago. Uh, One of my patron saints is the extraordinary English poet, John Clare, who died in 1864. Um, The most extraordinary genius. And this poem uh, begins with a line of his. And the poem, it's a sonnet, ends with an oblique reference to Heaney's poem The Blackbird of Glenmore The Poets Poem beginning with a line of John Clare Poets love nature and themselves are love Imagine an out of the way cottage close to dunes the marram grass whispering above technicolour snails and tern's eggs, intelligent chuffs on the roof at dawn, at dusk whimbrels whistling down the chimney and outside the kitchen window that cliff where ravens have nested for fifty years. Moth and butterfly wing decipherers counters of Connemara ponies and swans along the lazy beds at the lake's edge they materialise out of sea mist and into hawkbit haziness disappear one has written a lovely blackbird poem
0: Thank you so much, Michael. Um, no matter about an afterlife, I think the great joy of poetry is its ability to bring us into the moment. Um, and wouldn't it be wonderful to be in the park with Michael when he's uh, with his grandchildren? I think that must be great fun.
2: You haven't met them.
1: Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, Paula, are you ready to go? So I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Aminta, for the introductions and the chat. Um, and thanks, lads, brothers. <laughs> uh, I feel karmically linked through all eternity to Michael and Harry um, and through the, the publication by UCD Press of these uh, lectures and their beautiful productions. Um, and I look forward to seeing mine if I ever get the current lecture written for them in the middle of. I shouldn't really be out in public, I'm so deranged by it. <laughs> um, and Harry, I'm massively reassured by your concept of the cryogenic archive because as a woman, my chances of surviving in any, in any condition are slim, <laughs> so I will write the sublime poems. Um, I'm going to just uh, read some of the poems I've been working on while I'm lounging around in vacant and in pensive <laughs> mood. Um, I suppose poems uh, come from many different strands. There's usually many sources for the poem, and I've left my glasses behind me. Um, but one of the sources for the poem, a long poem I've been working on while I'm sitting in the chair, is uh, some remarks made to me by some local kids where I live in Baldoyle, out on the north side. And one of my poems was, some years ago on the Leaving Cert, It was a poem called, Would You Jump Into My Grave As Quick? And a bunch of local young ones came up to me and said, Oh, Paula, we love your poem. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, thanks very much. Yeah, it's lovely and short. and that went in somewhere. That <coughs> realization, you know, the way we torture the children of the nation equally, I'm sure, north and south, with um, you know, with poetry, the, f- the fetish, the fetish of meaning of what does it mean? Uh, what, what was the poet trying to say here? So, um, so they, those girls really inspired the work I'm doing now. So I'll give you that inspiring uh, moment. Uh, poem and then I'll read some of the, the new work so would you jump into my grave as quick my granny would ask when one of us took her chair by the fire you woman done up to the nines red lips a come on your breath reeking of drink and your black eye on my man tonight in a Dublin bar think first of the steep drop The six dark feet. So, um, so the short. uh, This is a long poem composed of eighty-one short poems. Um, It's kind of obsessive, but it kept me going. Um, Some of them were written up on Fitzroy Avenue, in Belfast, near Queen's University, famed in uh, song and poem. Those of you who are Van Morrison. Fans will recognise it from his classic (coughs) *Madame George, um, and I just loved living there in high Victorian Gothic. Um, Some were written in my office in Trinity, uh, up the top of the um, house in um, Weston Row, where Speranza, the nationalist poet, Lady Wilde, mother of Oscar Wilde, gave birth to Oscar So some of them channel, I'm sure, those birth pangs. And more were written out in the shed in the back garden in Baldoyle. So um, I'll just give you a blast of them for the few minutes that are left. And thank you for your attention. The Trust. Leave her in the lap of Our Lady, her counsel for where to place the lost when we close the door on their madness. She slammed the door on her own daughter, left her to the city's chartered streets, found her in the Liffey's dark water, cast up in the week before Christmas, the city gripped in the hardest frost, the eve of the new austerity. The Old Professor. It's not just that he can't remember you, He can't recall any of it. The university, his other students. I rocked, I reeled, I was knocked off kilter. As if the child in me had stepped up to the blackboard and picked up the chalky duster and wiped her future lines away. Even the bit where he helps me get sober and clear. (coughs) The memory stick. I searched high, low, all over the place, growing more anxious by the minute. A whole summer's work in a square-inch cohesion of metal and plastic. An ode, an elegy, a ballad, a sonnet flawed by its rhetoric but still retrievable at a pinch. If I could recall where I put it, the (laughs) memory stick in its shiny case. Uh, The Pinhead. Just how many angels were dancing last night in your junk-dazed eyes. And how in God's name can you be such a drag on this miraculous entrancing creation? You swear you can change now with your life in a black plastic bag. We dread the sight of you advancing feathers flying thunder on your brow frightening the children and the dog the flood it was only when it receded we knew it for the gift it had been if truth be told we missed the water it was exactly what we needed we missed the way it made a mirror doubled goose, godwit, egret, heron. And that once in moonlight we looked down on two complete and drowning strangers, those depths where later wolfbane seeded. The mother tongue. I I write in my stepmother tongue, and I have all the problems (laughs) traditionally in the fairy tales. That the stepdaughter has with stepmother. <laughs> the English tongue, the mother tongue. Was it beaten into me or out of me? Is it the lump in my throat where words clot and snag and block the glut that bills and bills and threatens to blow my head off? Though there's no word for no, grant me the words for grey hooded crow, apple, orchard, child. Tenement, slut, caravel, quinquereme, black-sailed boat, the far shining cities of the south. The last thing my ebbing father said to me was, not the wind, before he slipped below the horizon of his morphine dream. So was it the moon in the hospice rigging, or the clouds buoyant shadow? Or my mother's voice helming him home? No, I think it was some ferocious winged creature at the ward's window, breast feathers flecked with salt-laced foam. And I'll finish with a poem called uh, The Poet I used to tell myself when I was young, I would never indulge myself by writing things like on poetry, the poet, and such like. Um, but alas, I've succumbed, I have written a poem called On Poetry, and now the poet after Rilke. No beloved, no home to go to, no place on this earth where I can stand and call myself citizen. Alone in the face of these days, these long nights, each moment a bird that flies from me. With empty hands, I enter the light of each creature, each flower, each stone. My spirit incarnate bears the wound of knowing the price of making do. So thanks.
0: Thank you very much, Paula. That was absolutely Um, gorgeous. And um, we are now going to, I think, launch Harry's book officially. So, uh, will we take a question before we go? question or two? Okay, would anybody like to ask a question in the uh, the audience? I just wondered what the advice collectively would be for the
1: next...
0: Aha! Now, there's a question. What do you want to say to the next (coughs) professor of poetry, whoever he or she might be?
3: That's... uh that's one of those agent provocateur questions, yeah. I think.
1: Um, yeah. N- Nessa, I, I think one of the amazing things about the chair is that we have this board of trustees, and in fact Michael is one of the trustees too, and I see Mary Clayton here and Bob Collins, the, the chair of the board of trustees, um, and they basically let you do, you know, work to your own methodology and work in your own way and do your own thing, which I think is really underneath it all, um, the, the gift of it, that you can be yourself, you know? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. the, the best thing you could be offered?
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, might, I, might, I might just say something in, in response to that, actually. Um, uh, one of the things I loved about uh, being... Um, Ireland, professor of poetry, and Michael has alluded to it is the connection with young people, um, but I think um, I would advise uh, an incoming person to very consciously um, go right to the, the early years of a student's uh, university period to get below the sort of the postgraduate layers or the the sort of the privileged layers, if you if I could put it that way, the top layers, and to go to that point where maybe some young person um, uh, has, has, has left, just left school, um, and they haven't really um, become institutionalized within the university system. And again, I found when I was, uh, particularly I found it in UCD actually, that uh, by going to the very, very first year, um, you, you found yourself in, in a, a, an imaginative layer that was still wide open. Um, that hadn't been intimidated by forms of academic scholarship, um, and I think I think it's very very important if you can get to connect with people at that that point, you know, when the imagination is still wide open and it hasn't become afraid of itself. I'd nearly say through scholarship, you know, that's not to demean scholarship, but in connection with this this intangible thing, I think you have to find it when it's still new.
2: I, I would say that poetry has given me so much. And practically all of my friendships uh, have been as a result of, of poetry. And one wants to give the, the youngsters, the 18 and 19 year olds um, coming into one's life uh, a taste of that. I would advise the professor to smile at them. and. Um, Uh, I would also say it has been my belief for a long time that the young are always right even when they're wrong.
0: (laughs) Excellent advice there from all three. So um, I've been asked by the people at UCD Press to say anyone who would like to come upstairs for a cup of tea or coffee is welcome to do so and the books will also be available if you'd like to buy them. Thank you very much indeed.